All right, thank you for leading us again in worship. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11? Uh, We're going to look at verses 37 to 54 this morning. If you're visiting today, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and this is the particular text we've come to for this Sunday. I would like to read it for us as we begin, and then I'll pray. Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now, when you hear a passage like that, you may be wondering, wow, what kind of a message is this going to be this morning? Uh, You may have never heard a sermon on this text before. I don't know. In some churches, it would probably be skipped over. Uh, If they are prone to preaching topical messages, they're probably not going to pick this one out and come to it. So why do we look at this? It is because it is God's Word. And it is a warning that was needed then and is needed today. And I pray that we will take to heart what he says. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, your word is holy and it is true. And you know what is going on in our hearts and you know what's going on in our world. And this is a word we need to hear. And so, Father, I pray that as we walk through this text today, you would help me to bring out its meaning and that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you want to say to each of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Have you ever wondered how schools and universities that were established for the sake of the gospel could so quickly move away from that and lose focus on their mission and their purpose? Sadly, in the history of the church, the same thing has happened with churches and denominations over time that started so well, focused on the gospel, on Jesus Christ and preaching the word of God, and then began to drift and lost their way as a result. Why does that happen? Well, John Ortberg, in the series that we're using in our ABFs, wrote in his book, Who is This Man?, that one of the unique things about Christianity is its emphasis on the mind. In the Old Testament, the verses that were at the heart of Israel's faith were what was called the great Shema. Shema in Hebrew means hear or hear ye. It's a stressing that we are to hear with an attitude to listen, to understand, and to obey. And so those verses that were at the heart were Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so here was this essential command. Israel was unique in what it believed. The other nations were polytheistic. They had many gods in their pantheon. But Israel said there is one God, creator of heaven and earth, and he alone is to be worshipped and served. So in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked a question by one of those experts in the law, what is the greatest commandment? He pointed to that verse, but he made a slight emendation in it. He said, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. With all our mind. Sometimes critics of Christianity have kind of said, yeah, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to check your brains at the door. They just kind of want to write it off that way, thinking that, you know, you're believing in stuff that just couldn't possibly have happened. It's not true. That is a falsehood that is out there. That being a Christian does not mean checking your brains at the door. No, God wants us to love him with all of our mind and to be engaged. And it was this belief that God is a rational God that actually led to the formation of schools and universities and the development of science, trying to understand our world because we believe that there was a creator who designed it. That's why there were laws of the universe as well as laws given in Scripture. Augustine was the one who said that all truth is God's truth. Wherever you find it, truth belongs to God. Martin Luther said that every person needs to be able to read and write so that they can study the Scripture for themselves. That was the reason that Christians were passionate about education. They wanted us to have the ability to hear and read the Word of God for ourselves. And John Ortberg pointed out in his book that quite remarkably, just six years after the pilgrims landed in Massachusetts, The Puritans founded a school that would become a leading university in America. I mean, here they are. They're they're in the wilderness. Just six years after coming here and trying to survive those early winters, they're thinking about education, and they establish a university. And in its handbook, it said this. It said, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies 
is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. You know, so think about that. I mean, they're saying, you know, we want to help you to learn. We want to help you to grow and develop in your gifts and to find uh, your skills and establish a career or profession, all those kind of things. But all of that is secondary to this, that we want you to know God and know Jesus Christ because that is eternal life. That was Harvard University in its establishment. And after Harvard came other schools like Yale and William and Mary and Princeton and Brown. In fact, 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities began as Christian universities for the honor and glory of God. And then somewhere along the way, they began to drift. And the Word of God and this focus upon Jesus Christ and the gospel got pushed to the side, not just secondary, but lost altogether. And it was replaced by the lamp of human wisdom. Sadly, as I said, though, that has happened at times in churches and denominations that have lost their focus on the gospel and the mission that God has given us to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. And instead, they become more like a country club catering to its members or more concerned about uh, doing good things but never really sharing the way of salvation, and they have missed the mark. Today we're going to look at an example of that in the Scripture concerning the Pharisees. And we're gonna, I'm going to share with you a little bit about how the Pharisees started and then what happened to them as they too lost their focus on the most important thing. The Pharisees were plagued by two specific dangerous sins. And we see in this passage the danger of legalism and hypocrisy. Legalism and hypocrisy. Two of the most deadly sins that can occur even in the church. So who were these Pharisees? Well, originally they were laymen who were concerned about the moral decline in Judaism. They looked around at what was happening and how people weren't following the Word of God, and they were concerned about that. They, were, they took their faith seriously, and they wanted to separate themselves from impure things by following the Mosaic Law. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated once, and so they wanted to live a holy life. We're going to go back to the Word. We're going to try to follow this perfectly as best we can. And what started out as a good thing, a concern for God and his word, became cold and deadly by the time of Jesus. And these two problems of legalism and hypocrisy reared their ugly head. So in this account, Luke tells us that Jesus had been invited by one of the Pharisees to come and have a meal with him. And Jesus was not opposed to having table fellowship with these Pharisees, and so he goes to this person's home and sits down at the table to wait for the meal to be served. But the Pharisee noticed something. He noticed that Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate. And why was that? Well, I don't think that Jesus was opposed to washing hands, but he was being very intentional in what he was doing. He intentionally chose not to follow the rituals of the Pharisees in this custom. You see, the Pharisees had rules about everything, including how you wash your hands. And it had to be done perfectly, or you would not be considered clean. 
So when you came in, you were supposed to wash your hands and have water poured over them up to the wrist. If it was poured up to the wrist, then you were clean. If it went up above the wrist and then the water ran back down on your hand, then you were unclean. Or if you did it and, and you poured water on one hand up to the wrist and, okay, that was clean, and then you said, you know what, I really need to clean this other hand, and you took the picture and you poured it on the other hand, well, then one hand would be clean and one would be defiled. Uh, they had rules like that, uh, that if you wash one hand and then you rub them together, well, then they were both unclean. You couldn't do that. It had to be done just this certain way. And all of that was detailed in the Jewish Mishnah. And look at what Jesus said. They did the same thing when it came to washing dishes, if you will. In verse 39, he said, Now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? You know, here they are. They were hypocrites. They were so focused on external things that they had neglected the heart and they had lost their love for God and for people when God cares about both of those things. And in the verses that follow, Jesus pronounces these six woes against the Pharisees that are really an indictment against any false or misguided religion. That's why we need to hear them today as well, because they keep popping up in our world. So what are those six signs of legalism and hypocrisy? Well, we're going to walk through them. The first is the one that I mentioned, that legalism focuses on externals and not on the heart. Verse 42. Here Jesus gives another example, and it concerns tithing. He said, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. You know, you can imagine that these guys say it's harvest time and they're going out there in their garden and they're picking out different things and then they're counting out, okay, you know, it's like, it's like if my wife goes out to our garden and picks a sprig of basil leaves, you know, or, or something like that, she's got to count out, okay, here's nine leaves over here for us and then here's one leaf for God. And then when I pick raspberries, it's got to be, okay, here's nine raspberries over here, and it's one raspberry over here. I mean, that's, that's kind of what they were doing. They were down to minutia on focusing on all of these little, little details. When here they are with this harvest in abundance, and if their neighbor is hungry, they don't care. They don't care about helping those people around them. Or if they're thinking about you know, uh, healing the sick on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus, you can't do that. This is the Sabbath. You got to follow all the rules, Jesus. You know, we don't care about those people that are sick or suffering. And that's what was happening. They were starting to focus on the minutiae. Legalism is deadly because of that, because it majors on minors and it minors on the majors. They should have done both. Jesus wasn't against tithing, but he didn't want them to get so bogged down in these kind of details. I mean, it is right to give to the Lord first fruits of our harvest or to give him a tithe of what we have been given, but they were taking this to the extreme. And in the process, they had neglected their love for God and love for people. Another sign of legalism is that legalists are quick to criticize. 
They feel like it's their job to kind of police and correct everybody else, but they themselves are exempt. Can't say anything about them, but boy, they're quick to say it about other people. And they kind of sit back and they, you know, look at what's going on and, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. You know, and they, they point it out and they find fault in everyone. Outwardly, they wanted to appear holy, but inwardly, they were full of greed and wickedness. And sadly, sometimes that happens even in Christianity. And whenever Christianity is reduced down to a set of do's and don'ts or rules that you need to follow to be in or not in, you know, and it's all about this set of rules that you've got to follow, we're missing the mark. The focus of Christianity is on our relationship with God. And it's our heart. And we need to take care of first things first. He goes on to talk about that. And that a second mark was pride and ostentation. They loved to be seen as holy men. And so in verse 43, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. In the synagogue, what had developed was that they would have these seats at the front where these Pharisees would sit, and they'd kind of look out on everybody else, and they loved to sit up there and to have attention to them. You know, I think uh, our elders, our leaders in our church would be embarrassed if we had a whole row of chairs up here that were just for those that were in leadership, you know, because somehow they're supposed to be better than everybody else. No, not at all. And here were these Pharisees that loved that, and they had special clothes that they would wear, distinctive dress identifying themselves, and they loved to be greeted by those who were in the marketplace, but it was all for show. Charles Spurgeon talked about the problem in his day with ministers, particularly in the high church, who would go about town in their religious garb from head to foot, and their manner and appearance was designed to call attention to themselves. It still happens today. Whenever people call for more attention to themselves and to the Lord. You know, and we've seen it sometimes where you have the development of celebrity pastors, if you will, or people who live a lavish lifestyle where they, while they say they're serving the Lord, you know, and they want all these perks and benefits, and it's all about them. And, and they may still use religious language, but in their heart, you know, they're, they're thinking they're pretty special, or look at what they've done, or things like that. And they live these kind of extravagant lifestyles that are contrary to what Jesus has called us to do. Sometimes it shows up in people wanting to, you know, make known how many titles and degrees that they have, wanting everyone to know all their credentials and make much of that when instead we are to make much of Jesus. Whenever Christianity engages in that kind of self-promotion in whatever area it is, rather than putting the focus on the Lord and about loving Him and loving people, we are missing the mark of what He's called us to do. A third area of concern was the area of defilement. Jesus said that they were like unmarked graves. Now what's that about? Well, in that day... Jewish cemeteries were clearly marked so that no one would accidentally step on the grave of someone who had died and be defiled. 
If you were defiled, you were unable to participate in the worship or a festival. And so tombs were whitewashed so that they were clearly identified and people would know that. And that was especially true before the major festivals like Passover or Pentecost or the Festival of Booths. You wanted to be able to come and join in the the celebration. You had made this special trip down to Jerusalem to participate in that. You didn't want to accidentally step on the grave of someone and be defiled. Well, Jesus said the Pharisees themselves were like whitewashed tombs, and they were full of dead man's bones. By their teaching and example, they defiled others rather than helped them. I mean, this critical spirit, this legalism, this adding to what people had to do just created a heavier burden. It discouraged people. They felt like they could never measure up. It was all law and no grace. But in contrast, the New Testament instructs those who are elders in the church to be an example to the flock, to live out what you want others to follow. In your teaching, to encourage, to build up, to edify, and to point people to Jesus. Paul will say to Timothy, as a young pastor, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And so the question needs to be asked, does our teaching help people to grow? Does it glorify God and give us a greater, grander vision of who God is? Does it help us to know Jesus? Does it show us the way of salvation? Does it encourage and lift up those who are weak? By our teaching, we are to instruct others in how they can know Jesus. Well, what happened here is that Jesus directed these first three critiques to the Pharisees. And then in verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him and said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. The experts in the law were the scribes. They were like lawyers. They were another group, and they worked closely with the Pharisees. And so now Jesus addresses these next three woes to these experts in the law. And one of the things that they had done was they had placed impossible demands upon people. That's the fourth sign of legalism and hypocrisy. These scribes thought that the best way to help people keep the law was to build a fence around it. In other words, if the law says don't commit adultery, well, then we're going to say, you know, don't do this and this and this and this and this, and we'll, we'll make it even more protective. The law says don't steal. Well, then we're going to add all these kind of rules you need to follow. The law says don't break the Sabbath. Okay, we're going to add more regulations to the Sabbath, and that's what they did. And as a result, 600 commands in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, became six thousand laws by the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, it was just unbelievable what they were doing here as they continued to add to the Word of God, and they expected people to follow all of these things. The greatest concern for them was the Sabbath. They came up with 39 categories, each with detailed subpoints of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to carry any heavy burdens on the Sabbath. That would be work, and that would be violating the Sabbath. So they decided that the heaviest burden that you could carry would be a dried fig. 
Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, does it? A dried fig. And then they were specific about how you carried it, because if you carried it the wrong way, it would be work. But if you carried it the right way, it was okay. But if you set it down and you picked it up again, you were doubling its weight, so that meant that you had violated the Sabbath. And they had these, again, minutia of rules and regulations. And life had become impossible for the average Jew. They had created so many burdens for the people, and they were unwilling to help them lift it. No wonder Jesus would say to the people, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you had asked the Pharisees, well, how can I know God? They would have said, well, here, here are these 6,000 rules, do this, and you'll be good. How does somebody even remember 6,000 rules and regulations? You could break one of those unknowingly. Or you could come to Jesus, and he would say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. All he asks of us is that we be honest, we acknowledge our sin before a holy God, and admit our need for a Savior. And we turn to him in humility and repentance, and we say, Jesus, would you forgive me and welcome me into your family? And do you know what happens? When the heart is right, when you take care of first things first, then those externals begin to change because God does his work in us. And all of a sudden you find yourself being a generous person because God has been generous to you. And you give because God gave to us and you love others because God loved us. And his grace has done such a work in your heart on the inside that you are going to live differently. You see the world differently. You see people differently. You value what God values, and you look at life in light of eternity, and that changes everything. But if you try to do that the other way, and you try to shore up the outside and put on this facade and try to hold that all together for people to see how good and holy you are, it's like wearing a mask, and it will not save And people will see that difference. A fifth critique is that legalism shows itself in intolerance. Jesus said in verses 47 to 51 that you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. And so you acknowledge, you join, you are complicit with what was going on here. And they may have thought they were doing a good thing by building these tombs to the prophets, but they didn't want to listen to what they had to say. And so now Jesus says that you are going to be guilty of all of it, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. It's kind of interesting that he used those two examples because in our alphabet, from A to Z works pretty well for summing up the whole, even though this would have been given in Aramaic. And so he talks about these individuals who now are going to be guilty of the death of every prophet. Why is that? 
It is because the prophets in the Old Testament all looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. They wrote about Jesus. They talked about this one whom God would send, who would carry away our burdens, who would pay the penalty for our sins, this one who would bring in his kingdom of righteousness. And their rejection of Jesus would be the final blow. They killed the prophets, and now they would kill the Son. They had rejected the authority of the Word of God that was given through the prophets in the Old Testament, and now they had rejected Jesus and His Word. And sixth, the worst of all, is that they deny the way of salvation. They deny the way of salvation, verse 52. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. They had been given the words of life. They were given the keys to the kingdom, if you will. They had the scripture that could point people to the way of salvation. But what he is saying is that they not only refused to enter themselves, they shut that door to anyone else. They didn't want anyone else to hear it. It would be like a church being given the word of God and the gospel and the way to point people to Jesus, the way to be saved and never speaking about it and never helping people to know that and choosing to focus instead on other things and missing the whole point of why we are here. This is the ultimate danger of false and misguided religion. Outwardly, it may look good. And they may have all the religious trappings and ceremonies and rituals. They may even be involved in doing good things. But if they do not preach Christ, and if they do not preach the gospel, they are missing the mark because they are not showing people the way to life. When legalism sets in and hypocrisy, what you find is that there is no acknowledgement of sin and a need for a Savior. There's no true repentance. There's no grace, and there is no hope. And that is why Jesus, in his ministry, was so inviting to sinners to come, and why he was so condemning of the Pharisees because they were shutting the door to life. You know, it's interesting in John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress, two of the characters that Christian meets on his way to the celestial city are formalist and hypocrisy. And here Christian has come to find the way of salvation, and he has come to know Christ. He has entered through the narrow door, confessing his sins and following Jesus. And now he's on that way toward heaven, toward the celestial city, and these two men join him. And here's what he says about them. They have been born in vain glory. And instead of coming the right way on the appointed path, they have come tumbling over a wall on the left-hand way. They have avoided both the cross and the hill of difficulty. Formalist is a stickler for correctness, a lover of ritual. He employs the forms of religion to quiet a dull conscience, he prefers form to substance. And hypocrisy takes this even further and lives this facade, this lie, to pretending to be what he is not. And together these two may get many people's attention, seducing them while their inner life and character are in decay. 
They are self-deceived, and they have taken the shortcut to holiness over the wall instead of by the narrow gate. Christian cannot help replying that I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancies. You are counted thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you will not be found true men at the end of the way. You come in by yourselves without his direction, and you shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. Formalist and hypocrisy are condemned. They are not true Christianity. There is one way to know God, and it is through his Son, Jesus Christ. The danger of legalism and hypocrisy is a danger that is there in every generation. And people can drift one way or the other, and they can drift into legalism, or they can drift the other way into license. That's why we need to guard our heart. Put away pride, love God, love people. The only way to prevent it, the only way to prevent drifting away from the Lord is to keep our eyes on Jesus and to walk humbly and obediently with God. You know, I love what Pastor Kent Hughes wrote in response to this text. I I wish I had written it myself, but I'm going to read it to you because I just say a hearty amen to what he wrote here. He said, we need to be very careful to be people that give primary exposure to God's word in the pulpit and in our personal lives. We must be people primarily of one book. We must be John Bunyan's. If there is one goal I would like to reach through long years of ministry, it is to form a group of people who know when they hear the word preached and who know when they do not hear it preached. People who are discerning. And I would like to leave behind a legacy of people who read many books, but who are people of one book. If that happens, the future will be very bright. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may that be true of us, that we would be a people of one book who love your word and who want to live this way and who are honest when we fail and when we sin to seek your forgiveness, who desire to strive to know you better and to help others to know you too. And may you bless this church and the teaching that takes place here, the fellowship, the witness, that others might come into a relationship with Christ and grow in their faith. And Father, we look forward to that day when you will return and the books are open and we see what you have done. God, may you have used us to be part of that great story. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we close?